This podcast is brought to you by the book, The Memoir Project, a thoroughly non-standardized text for writing in life, published by Grand Central Publishing. Recently updated and reissued in a new edition, it will teach you everything you need to know to write memoir. For more information, see the show notes or purchase wherever books are sold. Welcome to QWERTY. I'm Marion Roach-Smith. And I'm David Leet. Each episode, we talk to writers from all genres to discover what makes a good read. And along the way, we discuss their writing process, discover their tips, and talk about what matters most to writers. So step away from the computer or typewriter for a bit and join us. Today on QWERTY, we welcome Marsha Butler, author of The Skin Above My Knee, what I think of as among my very top survival memoirs. What she survives is sexual abuse at the hands of a family member. What she does with this tale is write to the power of art to inspire and heal. Hi, David. I want to introduce you to Marsha Butler, who I met online through her marvelous memoir, The Skin Above My Knee. And I was so curious uh, mm-hmm. after reading the book about her, particularly when I learned that she has been a professional oboist, in fact, yes. principal oboist and soloist on some of the greatest stages in the world. She's Her interior design projects are well known. She's got a documentary film exploring the essence of creativity out spring 2019. As I said, she's this memoirist, and she's also a novelist, which is... I love underachievers, don't you? Yeah, well, I think the only question we can do is just turn right to her and say, yeah, well, so what, Marsha? Can you bake a cherry pie? Exactly. (laughs) Well, thank you for (laughs) having Welcome to the show, Marsha. Thank you so much. It's a pleasure, and... um, I cannot make a cherry pie, in fact. Oh, thank God. I know, yes. really. There's, there's something you can't do. It's my one flaw. You uh, know. But, you know, <laughs> thank you for all the listing all of my, you know, various um, accomplishments or whatever you want to call them. Mm-hmm. Um, at the end of the day, of course, as a creative artist, I'm on my knees sobbing every other day. (laughs) So that's not to say anything is easy. It's not to say that anything has come easily to me. Um, Mm -hmm. I, I used to say a long, a few years ago that yes, yes, I've been very lucky. Yes, yes, I've been very lucky. I actually am revising that as of about, uh, you know, a month ago. (laughs) I work very, 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 very hard at whatever I do. I work like Mm. a dog in chains and opportunities come past my door. And that is what, uh, you know, I think has helped me um, be successful in a couple of different careers working hard. I mean, there is no such thing as luck. So I've just worked really, really hard at what I do. And, um, you know, just been drawn by my various interests in the arts. Um, wow, we're so grateful. Cherry, 
I, I'm going to make a cherry pie, though. I just want to, okay. yeah. I'll and just, I'll be happy to show you how if you need a little bit of help. David's Please. the one to teach you. And David's the one to teach you, absolutely. Well, I, I as you remember, we met over your book, The Skin Above My Knee. And mm-hmm. honestly, the ideas that you bring forth in this book as you chronicle the abuse and of your childhood, the healing of your that music brought you. I, I'd love you to give our readers, our listeners, sorry, not our readers, our listeners, a little background and then tell and then maybe I could if you could tell us at what point in your healing did you feel equipped to write the book I think that would be so helpful to other people who are writing from healing and by background you mean my life story a little bit of background about the the abuse just where and what and and then how the music and yeah right okay Um, I grew up in Pittsfield, Massachusetts, which is Western Massachusetts, and I grew up in a family that was very, very chaotic. Um, My father was physically abusive to his sister, uh, you know, beat her up a lot, and I was uh, sexually abused in in a sort of an oblique way from a very early age, probably earlier than I can remember. Um, where I would sit on my father's lap and his penis was um, erect. I didn't realize that that was going on until I sort of woke up to it. Mm -hmm. And from that point, it became a bargaining chip for us. Um, My father and I, I I had discovered music when I was four years old through the music of Richard Wagner and um, the opera Tristan and Isolde, specifically sung through this um, uh, by uh, Kirsten Flagstad, who is a a wonderful, you know, Wagnerian soprano. Mm -hmm. That was my first um, exposure to music. Wow. And um, it was very impactful. I sort of... um, I saw that expression, that harmonic language of Wagner as a profound expression of love. Mm -hmm. And so it was a substitute for me in a family where my father was abusive. My mother was, you know, I believe she was aware of it, but was one of those typical 1950s family where you just look the other way and, you know, wear a pretty dress and a string of pearls and Mm -hmm. kitten heels. And there you go. Nothing like kitten heels to get a girl through some really hideous stuff. Right. Yeah. Yeah. So, um, you know, so this was my, my life. I understood when I started uh, playing the oboe at a young age that that was going to be my way out of this house. Mm -hmm. And so the power struggle between my father and I was essentially if I sit on his lap, he would take me to my oboe lessons. And this went on for years until I left when I was age 17 to go to New York City and become an oboist. I went to music conservatory here. Mm -hmm. So that's the Reader's Digest version of what happened to me and how music um, saved my life. So did you have to wait till you were, quote, healed to write this book? I mean, when did you say to yourself, I got this? At least Mm. I've got an interest in it. Right. Um, I had never written anything in my life. No journals, Mm. no nothing. Nothing. Until until I had um, established an interior design business after I was an oboist for 28 years in New York City. Mm -hmm. I started an interior. I went back to school. I started an interior design firm. And I had a blog. And I was writing about, you know, 
aspects of design and creativity. And I started writing short essays on my childhood. And that's when the floodgates opened. That's about 10 years ago, but I had not written one creative word before that. Mm -hmm. And it cobbled, I cobbled together a few things. And that's when I sent, I think about 40 pages to you, Marianne, Mm -hmm. just, uh, you know, tell me, tell me what this is. You were so, you were unbelievably helpful. I mean, you, you were so clear and you said, yes, this, no, that, you know, in other words, like gave me my marching orders. And then I proceeded to go for the next two years and write the memoir and um, was able to get it published. Yes, you did. Yes, you did. I remember when you sent me an email saying, got getting it published. And I thought, and there is no surprise here, but Mm -hmm. I am so completely on my knees with delight. That Mm -hmm. was one of the most astonishing emails I had gotten. The first one where you said, do you think there's anything here? And I read it saying, oh, hell yes. Mm. Well, I have to say kudos to you and, you know, bow down to you. If you had not written anything before, and then this is really your first book that you've written, your first first work of writing, that's astounding. That just shows that creativity is creativity is creativity. Mm-hmm. And those people who know how to harness it can harness it in so many different directions. Oh, well, mm-hmm. you're very kind. Um, you're very kind. I really appreciate it. I, I, I don't have answers for that. You know, mm-hmm. I just don't know how, other than the fact that being a musician, uh, in a, in a rigorous way, in a professional, high level of professional rigor to my music making, and also bringing that to interior design, I somehow feel that there was a foundation of understanding aesthetic correctness, rightness. This mm-hmm. is good. This is bad. Mm-hmm. And somehow I think that just bled into language and um, it it didn't come easily. I had never told 90% of that book to anyone. Friends did not know. Husbands did not know, knew nothing about what happened to me. I had kept it bottled up. So I think it's like that. It reads like you are just having that, that look in a, in in, in, across the landscape of it as a whole. That's one of the things that's so wonderful about it. Well, it certainly was palpable when I was writing it and I, kind of couldn't believe that I was writing it and what was I doing here and of course I went you know writing these things and exposure and everything when I hadn't I hadn't even told therapists I was so lying let's talk to- about that who we do tell a lot of my people mm-hmm. that I work with students and clients ask should I show it to my family should I tell them should I warn them should I let them know it's coming should I share it with my sister what's your advice to people about mm. when you're writing something that's clearly got the truth as a oh power, yeah. <laughs> power. If I could interject, yeah. also, were your parents alive when this was published? No, no. Luckily, right? I mean, mm-hmm. you know, I yep. yeah, I I was I was glad that that was the case. Of course, but there was no. I didn't really think of writing it at, after because it sort of just came out organically. But there's a few things that I would advise people in writing a memoir, which is about family. One is to be very careful that A, you are writing what is your own experience. Mm -hmm. 
So you're not taking inventory about um, the people in your family or whatever the conditions are that you're writing about. For instance, uh, one of the other people in my memoir is my sister. Um, I did not say, I only said what I experienced with my sister. I did not go into her life story. In fact, uh, she was a prostitute for many years. I didn't feel it was necessary to uh, take inventory on mm-hmm. her condition. She's also uh, passed away now, mm-hmm. but um, she passed away before the memoir was out. But that's the that's one thing is to do not take inventory of other people. Also, be very, very careful that you're not writing from a place of anger. Because when, I think when you write from a place of anger, the reader does not trust you. Mm. And it's unconscious from the reader's point of view, but I think writing from anger and kind of getting back at is a time when you, if you can recognize it, you might need to put that book up on a shelf for a while. Yeah. The reliability of the narrator is, is absolutely the most important part of memoir. First and foremost, the reliability. And if we feel rage, we feel dishonesty on some level. It is a very curious tension that's created with the reader, isn't it? Yes, absolutely. And then in terms of the writing process, uh, just a few more things on this. Mm-hmm. I would not have friends and family read anything. I would go to trusted uh, beta readers or trusted you know, advisors and mentors such as yourself, Marian. Um, people who have much, just the best distance, distance, you know, so that they can read it without relating to the person who's writing it. Right. So I kept it very close to the chest and, um, I did not, I only used, you know, people who were professionals essentially, who could tell me on a writing level and a narrative arc level, whether the thing was working. Um, and then once I, once I sold it to little Brown, I did have, you know, they brought in an attorney to go through it and ask me questions as to whether, you know, people were going to come back at me. And fortunately, they were satisfied that no one would, mostly because everyone was passed away. Right. Well, um, you can't libel the dead. And I don't say that with a smile. I say that seriously. And it's a very important piece for people to know. But that doesn't mean that you go and pile on the dead either, is you seem to be making the point that you tell your truth. Yes. Yes. Yeah. And one of the things, Mary, and you always talk about is do not write for revenge. It will never get you anywhere. Right. This is not a blunt object, this genre. No. And it's no. used entirely too much as a blunt object, but that always falls apart. I read lots and lots of memoir that fall apart quickly because it's meant to set the record straight. And of course, right. there is no such thing. I, I would even argue there is no such thing as one truth, but I get into no end of trouble in, on creative panels when I say things like yes. that. <laughs> I mean, no that, objective truth. Yeah, I agree with you, Marion. I mean, there everyone has their truth, mm-hmm. and then there's the facts. There we go. And who can That's really identify well what those facts are, because they are always perceived through the prism of your own psychology. Yes. And so, you know, and really, what does it matter I just think that having an agenda and having a um, a purpose which is filled with an, some sort of negative emotion coming from a place of a negative emotion, such as revenge, such as wanting to get back, 
such as a place from anger or incredible pain, you know, uh, that has not been worked through to a certain extent. I think this is going to get the writer in trouble. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. I think it's going to be a a one note samba. Mm -hmm. If you know, to use that metaphor, it will not have enough bandwidth. The story will have an emotional patina to it, which will in itself become labored, you know, um, boring, uh, not boring, but um, heavy mm-hmm. and not enough bandwidth. Mm-hmm. Sure. I, I talk a lot about that with people just in terms of, is this a blog post? Is this a personal essay? Is this an op-ed? Is it a book? And for a book, there's got to be a degree of grit that you only can understand as you try to write it. For it, you've just got to, it's got to feel like it can go first of all, in your own personal interest, perhaps three years, five years on mm-hmm. it. And then more than that, have you got enough? Have you got enough? Do you understand? Are you willing to look? These are all requirements of sticking with something for this length of time. Yes. So there, the lessons learned in memoir, do they translate? You're now a novelist. I'm so happy for you and so thrilled for me, the happy reader. But tell us, please, a bit about this decision to go into fiction, and then let's talk about your new novel. Okay, yes. Um, well, once I wrote the memoir, I really found, I, 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 I had the bug. I wanted to write. The and, bug. Yeah, <laughs> the dreaded bug. Um <laughs> And it's not a butterfly anyway. No, <laughs> um, no. More like a creative bacteria. Exactly. No. Malignant. I don't know. Yeah. Um, <laughs> you know, I, I really found the thing about writing in, in contrasting it to my other careers is that there's a lot of collaboration that goes on in the music world and, of course, in interior design because you have clients. And the beautiful thing about writing is there's – there's no interference. You're really alone with your own decisions, your own story, your own imagination. You know, even in music, you know, you go into rehearsal and you have a bunch of ideas and, you know, it's a collaborative effort to make the music be rendered in a way which is the best possible way for the music. And so a lot of your ideas get on, you know, get thrown on the floor and it's all for the glory of music and that's fine. But what writing gave me was this independence of imagination. Mm. And I started writing fiction. Uh, I started actually writing this novel. My novel coming out is called Pickles Progress. Um, I started writing it immediately when my memoir was was bought. Mm-hmm. I turned over in bed and started writing. Oh, and I love that. finished it about the time that my, um, by the time of the publication of the memoir, which took a year and a half. And um, I, I just, you know, I just, I felt like I could transfer the, uh, the learning, uh, the, the discovery of creating a narrative arc through memoir onto fiction, you know, and basically I see the art forms of, of nonfiction writing and novel writing as, essentially the same in terms of craft. You still have mm-hmm. to tell a story. There has to be character development. There has to be a beginning, mm-hmm. a middle, an mm-hmm. end. There has to be stakes. There you know, stakes at, you know, things at stake. There has to be tension, resol- you know, resolve. And 
I just went for it. And I here I must say I was very lucky to get it published because transferring from nonfiction to fiction is not a slam dunk. Publishing houses do not say, oh, sure, she's a memoirist. Let's bring her on as a, as a novelist. That no, they don't. It does not happen. And, mm-hmm. you know, in other words, you might as well be, you know, doing another profession, essentially. They don't make the connection. And so I had to sort of start over. And uh, I, I do feel very lucky that my novel was picked up in this case. Did you stay with the same agent? Did the agent get it and say, oh, sure, let's try this? Or how, how was that transition? Yes, the agent was is the same. They supported me a thousand percent. You know, they were delighted that I started writing fiction. I sent them a couple of chapters and they said, go. So, um, you know, they said, forge forward. We'll get this locked and loaded and we will we'll send it out. And it was they were completely supportive of me. What fascinates me, let's bracket fiction and nonfiction together as kind of the the craft or the art of writing. Then we go back, of course, to music and being an oboist. Was there a lateral learning that you accumulated and accrued as being a musician that you were able to apply somehow to the writing? And I know, of course, they're completely different arts, but as a creative person, something, there was something there because in an interview you gave, you said that words are like notes and paragraphs are like sections and a novel or a a book is like an entire uh, concerto or or entire uh, symphony. Was there anything that you pulled, anything that guided you initially to move from one art form to another that informed it? Hmm. Well, I do believe that all art forms are made from small bits. Mm-hmm. Um, whatever, you know, a room is a room. And then you, you know, you put something on the wall, you put something on the floor, you fill the void and you do it in a way which hopefully has um, a sense of proportion and scale and beauty. So for a musician, you have notes, you have to conquer mm-hmm. those notes then you have to add on dynamics to play soft or loud. Then you have to do the most the most difficult thing, which is to add meaning to those notes, which is your interpretation of Mozart, say. In mm-hmm. writing, you know, it's great to have the word, the sentence, the paragraph, and how does that all fit in to a chapter, you know, as, as you were saying, David. Um, mm-hmm. I think the thing that music has taught me most about forging through in various different art forms is to understand that you start with knowing nothing and like you don't know the notes and you don't know the words in fiction particularly or even in nonfiction what word will you literally start with is it i is it you is it you know i'm walking down the street those are unknowns so there's nothing known in art in working in an art, in an art form. And that's where you start. And with that feeling of the unknown comes with tremendous discomfort. Discomfort to the point where you just want to walk out of the room. You walk mm-hmm. up, want to walk away from the computer or the or the you know, put the pad down and the pencil and walk away from this immense 
immense discomfort that you don't know what you're doing, even though you know how to do it in a way, in a craft sense. But there's this like, what am I going to come up with today that is good? And it's almost impossible to fathom, right? Mm -hmm. To bring Mm -hmm. a new piece of music that you don't know, which is incredibly difficult to play and to start practicing it on day one and know that in four months you have a performance, which you feel like every step of the way you cannot accomplish. And somehow the cogs click in and you have done it. You can't imagine at the beginning that you could ever make that journey. It's the same way with writing. And what music has taught me is to, is to tolerate tremendous discomfort on a day-to-day basis. And I think that's one of the problems that writers have is about procrastination. And now it's even worse with the internet. You know, oh my God, you know, there's so many things to click on, you know, get off your page on the computer and just, oh, I'll check social media. And it's procrastination, but mainly it's about wanting to run away from the discomfort of the unknown. You're completely right about that. And I think that... If anything our listeners take away from this particular interview, there's many wonderful things you've said, is that is the ability to tolerate the discomfort of sitting in front of the computer and then putting, stringing words together that become sentences, that become paragraphs, that become chapters. Because nothing is more frightening and more difficult than tolerating and sitting through that anxiety. As I have said before many times, my house is never cleaner. Than when I have a deadline. I just, <laughs> That's I'm great. Cleaning, oh know. my goodness, that is so Absolutely. true. Absolutely, I've cooked an entire Indian piece of Indian cuisine <laughs> from scratch. My husband comes in and says, "What deadline did you miss?" Exactly. Right. Oh, it's right. so true. It's Otherwise, so- it's get something from the fridge, honey. I'm too busy to talk to yep. you. But yeah, absolutely. And you know, it's it's interesting, Marcia, because many times when I used to teach uh, quite a while back. And one of the things I would always say is that writing a book, a long piece, well, anything really, but writing a book, it's really like being the conductor of an orchestra because you need to know when to bring up the flutes and when to bring down the, the timpani and when to bring in the strings. It's the same thing with when writing. You need to know when to bring up some of the carriage. You need to know when to push back on tone, when to bring up on metaphor. And it's this constant balance that goes on. So to me, the reason why I was so curious, so excited that you were coming on the program, but also the fact of wanting to ask you that question is I see there being a great connection between the art and craft of music and the art and craft of writing. Mm -hmm. Yes, I I believe that there is. And maybe that's the answer to your question earlier in this interview is how did I do that? That Mm. they're not that dissimilar. Music is a language and it is a language which actually transcends our common language, which is spoken. Mm -hmm. And it communicates every bit of emotion that writing does when a reader writes and connects with a narrative or a narrator or protagonist. And, you know, the other thing that I'll say is uh, regarding this, this element of, of discomfort is to just say that the thing that pushes me through and which I say to other writers often is, is that only you can tell the story that you have. No one else can tell that story. Mm-hmm. And I think that's something that I hold on to it every day. No one's going to grab my story. In writing, there is no um, competition, really, on a real fundamental level. Because the story is only that writer's story. And I think that that's freeing in a way. Um, Because it it sort of brushes away um, 
the feeling that we're in this big pot together and this one's writing and that one's writing. It's like, no, you're writing your story. Only you know what's going to come up. You will discover what will come up in the next chapter, sentence, whatever. And that is sort of a balm for me, actually, to just think of that. Absolutely. Well, I know we have to wrap this up, but I have to ask you one more question that if you rolled over in bed and started writing Pickles Progress after writing The Skin Above My Knee, (laughs) what did you roll over in bed and start after you handed in Pickles Progress? Oh, my goodness. She started a political career. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) Oh, you're running. You're running for office. How nice. Oh, Lord. No, never mind. I'm running from the country is what I'm running from. So what did you start writing? Well, I... I immediately started writing another novel, which is, I have about, I have almost the first rough draft done. The, it, may I quote you, Marion? It's the vomit draft. Um, <laughs> truly <laughs> awful. But um, thank you for that. It's so perfect. You're welcome. I give it to you with all love. <laughs> um, yeah. So this novel is about a moose who lives in Maine. Oh, yes, it mm. is. In fact, and um it, this is a novel which is set in central rural Maine, and it is about social class. And Great. the moose lives on these two people, two families' property. And mm-hmm. through this uh, animal, we travel the lives of these people. And um, you know, it's about moose. It's about moose living in this moose living in Maine. Her name is Bindle. Oh. Well, you are my idea of just perfection. So thank you. So Marsha, we can't wait to read the, the, any words you write. You're a memoirist and a novelist. I I wanted to mention that your, your book, The Skin Above My Knee was one of the Washington Post's quote, top 10 noteworthy moments in classical music in 2017. I just love that. And that Pickle's Progress will be, was released in April of 2019, out now, Central Avenue Publishing. You live in New York City and right on, sister. We can't wait to read what's next. Thank such, you. Thank you. It's such a delight to, to do this. Thank you, David and Miriam. It was a pleasure. You're welcome. Thank you. That was Marsha Butler, author of The Skin Above My Knee and Pickle's Progress. Thanks so much for tuning in today, and please subscribe to Cordy so you can take us wherever you go. 